What's up, everybody? Major Retired Richard Ojeda here, and welcome to another episode of Airborne. We have got an amazing show for you guys today. We have Silver Star recipient James McCormick, who also happens to have three Purple Hearts. If you guys know people that have served in combat and struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder, you need to watch this episode. But remember, folks, I need for you all to also subscribe to the channel and then tap that notification bell so you can be alerted as to whenever we post any new stuff. And this this episode is starting right now. What's up, my brother? What's going on? Here we are. Yeah, man. I'm, I appreciate you taking the time to come on here, man. You know, I, I really think that it's important uh, to bring someone like you on, on the show. And the reason for that is because, you know, we've been fighting these forever wars now for 20 years. Uh, the VA system right now is practically overrun. Uh, and we're starting to see, you know, cracks. Uh, but you know, it's important for, uh, for, for people to know, you know, what really goes on, uh, and, and, and how, you know, we're losing veterans every single day. You, uh, as a person who has been to combat multiple times, you are highly decorated silver star recipient, three bronze stars with V device for valor and three purple hearts. Uh, and, and I've known you for quite some time and you're not the kind of guy that sits here and beats your chest, but you know, I just, I really wanted to bring someone on of your caliber because I think the majority of people out there, once they know who you are, they will understand uh, the importance and, and we'll be able to hear it in your voice, uh, that we've got to do more for our veterans in this country. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I mean, we're talking about you know, a population that generally equates to somewhere between one and 3% of America's population. And, you know, if, you know, between 99 and 97% of the others can't take care of those one to 3% that's providing, you know, all of your defense of the nation, all of your, you know, wartime fighting capabilities. And we haven't had to have a draft in, you know, since Vietnam. So everybody in there is a volunteer and, and, you know, a lot of times you get that kickback from people saying, well, you asked for it. Well, if we didn't volunteer for it, then you would be made to go, you know, uh, that's something we need to think about. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, uh, you know, you're spot on right there. And, you know, I never really thought uh, at, at that angle, but, but you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, today in the United States of America, for those kids out there that are poor, that, you know, would love that opportunity to go to college, but knows, you know, that it's practically something that they just can't afford. They basically have to volunteer to go stand on a two-way range, you know, and get shot at to be able to get their college capabilities. And that's, I mean, the GI Bill is phenomenal. Everybody knows I used it, you used it. But it's a shame that, you know, a lot of kids in this country have to go that route in order to be able to get uh, higher education. Yeah, and, and I would agree with you on that because, you know, the cost of education is extremely expensive. And, you know, and even with the GI Bill and some of those benefits, 
you know, we still find people with this amazing student debt. I mean, it's just just outrageous. And and I get it. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, you got to pay for it. You should. But, you know, you, should you really be paying for something 10, 15 years after you graduate? I mean, you could be investing in a house, you know, with the kind of money that some of these these younger folks are, are kicking out. And that's even our fellow veterans, because I see them, you know, they go get a now they might not have to get as much student loan, but they get a student loan. And, and you're talking about, you know, to pay back, a, you know, $40,000 or a $50,000 debt, five years, six years, seven years. And that's, that's quite a payment. Um, so I think that we really need to look at that as well. So when we're talking about education, you're talking about the people that are in the middle-class America, whatever that is now, I don't even know what that looks like now. Um, but those people that are considered to be poor, you basically, you have the extremely poor and you have the extremely wealthy and that, that gap, you know, most of those people you see serving in the military belong to that more of the extremely poor group. You've seen them, Richie. I, I seen them, you know, kids that came in, literally I was a drill sergeant and, uh, for a while. And I'm going to tell you, we had kids that came in that we had to teach them things like personal hygiene. You know, there were kids that had never ate, um, you know, uh, you know, a breakfast, like a traditional breakfast, like you see in the chow hall. They thought they were living like how on the hog. And we, you know, and then you had some people complain about the, the chow hall food, but you had a lot of them man, they were like, this is a blessing. This is great. This is wonderful. I've never experienced this. I always joke around, tell people, look, when I went in the army, you know, I always thought that salmon came in a can, you know, because I'm from the country, you know, we didn't just, <laughs> so when, when someone, you know, grilled out a piece of salmon, you know, and gave it to you, I thought, what is this? It's fish. I knew it was fish. I've eaten fish before, but never anything like that. So, the experiences that you get are pretty amazing. And those that are on that lower income cycle, a lot of them go into the military, not saying that there's not rich kids and, and people of more wealth that go in. There are a few of those that go in, but the majority are people that came from our class and middle class, you know? Yeah. If you, uh, if you walk out in front of any platoon in the United States military and start asking people, you know, if your mother and father, you know, uh, made more than this much, you know, you'll see very little hands pop up. You know, if your mother and father made below this, then all of a sudden the hounds are popping up. Uh, but, you know, one of the main reasons why I wanted to bring you on here is because, you know, PTSD is something that, that we hear about constantly. We are in these forever wars. And, you know, I've said this many times when I was running for office. If we send you away and break you in war, it is our responsibility to fix you when you come home. Uh, but what I want you to do for starters here is I would really like for you to paint a picture. And the reason why I say this is because I've heard you speak about this before, about Desert Storm. And, you know, once, you know, the war kicked off, you know, it, it wasn't a long war, but make no mistake about it, the, the, the things that happened in that short period of time was absolutely brutal to to witness, and and I kind of want you to kind kind of paint a picture for these folks because that was your first experience in 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 this life uh, of 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 war. And you know, 
we're combat arms. You know, we when we join the military, a lot of us were excited and we think we all want to be Rambos and all these things. So we volunteer to be combat arms. Uh, and, you know, it, you learn really fast when combat actually does, you know, come to you that it's not like what you see on television. Uh, so, you know, kind of kind of explain to these people, you know, one of the one of the worst experiences or at least your first experience of combat. Well, you know. I was stationed at Fort Benning and I got deployed with the 24th Infantry Division. So we became the roundout brigade of the third uh, brigade of the 24th. I was a scout in the HHC, second of the 18th Infantry. And, and we literally, where we were at, we were, you know, they made this tip of the spear thing. And if you look at the tip of the spear, you have the scout platoons that are rolling out in front in a screen line. And what you have behind you is you have an entire brigade. So we had the entire brigade combat team uh, that was composed of, you know, heavy mech, you know, fast-moving Bradley fighting vehicles, M1 Abrams, and, of course, artillery was constantly coming up. And and artillery would set up, you know, somewhere between 8 and and as far as 18 miles behind you to be able to hit targets. And out in front of you, this rolling thunder, the, the desert storm, it started out with this massive airstrike. So every day from January the 16th on, you know, it was a constant, constant, you know, aerial bombardment, aerial bombardment. We'd creep forward, we'd creep forward. Then we were right on the border. Then we creeped over the border, you know. So my birthday, January 26th, was actually my first real on-the-ground combat patrol and it was to check out an, an outpost that had been totally just wiped out by um, by a copperhead system from uh, an artillery uh, piece. And we had a, a forward observer that was with us that lays that thing in. So we were there taking them and we watched all that transpire. But it was still far away, the MLRSs and all these things. And I thought to myself, well, I'd hate to be on the receiving end of that. But when we started pushing forward and we jumped up on what they classified and called the highway of death, and that was the road, ASR Jackson, MSR Tampa, what you look at now when you're in Iraq, you know, those were the routes that were just polluted with destroyed and burning vehicles. So before we got up on that road, it was very dark, um, first, you know, movement to contact. And we had met some small resistance, you know, mainly um, people in, in bunkers. And, and then in front of us, we had called in um, aerial gunnery on a, con, a convoy of Iraqi vehicles that were en route from Kuwait uh, into, into Iraq. And those two A-10s, they were like two bats. And it was dark, so you couldn't see them. But I can remember looking up and seeing the flash, and then you just hear, and you can see everything exploding on the ground. And it's like, and they were really good at it. They got the first vehicle and got the last vehicle, and they jammed them up on that road, so there was no escaping them. And they just absolutely annihilated them. So within, right almost at the break of, 
of, uh, you know, when you're starting to get into the daylight time scenario, uh, you can start to see the fog and the mist coming up and everything's on fire. Uh, my driver uh, and I were in the first vehicle in that spear, in that push up that route, the very first vehicle. And, and we had, you know, we were set in like a, uh, a diamond formation, you know, traveling with armored personnel carriers and just pushing forward and running up on things every now and then somebody would pop up, they'd fire, blah, blah, blah. but it was mainly just this massive carnage destruction things that nightmares are made out of. And there were bodies everywhere. I mean, literally people were just in all forms of grotesque um, shapes and burning bodies laying in the, in the road and it stunk really, really bad. It was like a mixture between a diesel and a very, um, uh, just, just, I can't even hardly explain almost, almost worse than a sewage treatment plant. I mean, it was just really that bad. And the diesel though, really just brings it back home for me. And as we're driving up the road, my driver's like pivoting, trying to go around the bodies, you know? And on the radio, I hear the radio crackling, you know, and it's like, hey, red, uh, you know, red four, you guys need to pick up the You've got the entire combat brigade behind you. And I explained that we're trying to go around the bodies. And the response was, push forward. And I told my driver, he said, I got people laying here. He said, I don't know if they're all dead, alive, or what. I didn't, you know, they were dead. But um, so we pushed forward. And I remember the first body that we crunched underneath that 13 tons of steel you think well you're probably not going to feel much but you can hear it and it's like a splattering melon it just you just you don't forget things like that and i'm setting up in the hatch and and i'm looking around and my driver's like you know not saying hardly anything, but he's like, I hate doing this. I hate doing it. I hate doing it. I can remember hearing him in the internal, you know, microphone. I'm like, shut up and drive, shut up and drive, look forward, just look straight forward, look straight forward. And, you know, after we got through all of that mess, by the time we got set up and we, we got ready to assault a compound, um, you could look back and you could see, you know, the mess. And, and one of the things I remember that I related to that is anytime I drive down the road and I see a deer or a carcass that's just been massively just hit by a semi and there's just all of this goo all over the road, that's what those people look like. So every time that I see that, I always go back, you know, to that night, you know, in February, you know, 1991 you know, driving down the highway of death, trying to, you know, keep the brigade moving forward. And, and that's how I justify that in, in my mind. That what I don't tell you and what I haven't told you is once we got stopped, we had to clean our tread, the treads, you know, and the sprockets out and the clothing and the pieces of blood and flesh. It was all thrown up in there. 
Well, we didn't have a water hose. You didn't have anything. So, you know, you're just taking sand and you're trying to get it off. It was a mess. It was a mess. It was, it, it was a butcher shop, man. It was just absolutely a butcher shop. And if you have, you know, if you get yourself into a situation like that and you're not changed by it, then you're not normal. You know what I mean? It's like, it's normal. You know, PTSD, I got to tell people this. PTSD is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. You know, so people ask me, you know, were you bothered by this? Yes. I'm, when I say bothered, I don't mean that I feel guilty. No, I didn't feel guilty. I felt traumatized and my men felt traumatized because, you know, we seen it. And then afterwards, we have to the whatever out of our treads so that we can move on for the next section of that. So, yeah, that's that's real time. No joke. You know, and, and, you know, a lot of people, they don't understand that, you know, no matter where you're at, you know, combat soldiers are out there doing combat operations, but everybody that finds himself in a combat zone will find themselves in situations uh, where they see things that, you know, nobody should have to see, uh, you know, I, I mean, mortars and rockets coming in on the base, uh, I will tell you that, you know, one of the things that always gets me is when, you know, I drive up and down the roads. Uh, I ran a combat security team and, you know, we're outside the wire constantly and we're doing our missions and we're taking people from point A to point B and we're providing them with the safety and the security. But, you know, when you see, you know, things on the side of the road in Iraq, you immediately went, you know, immediately started your actions for an improvised explosive device. You know, uh, you, you stopped, you back up, you, you know, you called, you reported. I mean, all these things. But what a lot of people don't understand is that when you come home, that remains with you forever. When I drive up and down the roads right now and I see something on the side of the road, I automatically, I think to myself, IED. Now, I don't swerve or do anything like we did in combat because I know I'm in America. And I know that, you know, uh, I, got, <laughs> I got a cat next to me. I know that we're in America and this is not something that we, you know, we normally will see. Go on. <laughs> bring, a, bring a cat. Oh, he's jumped down. He's jumped down. But, uh, <laughs> but, I mean, you know, it's no different than like when you go under an overpass. And, you know, when we were in Iraq, we went under the overpass and we swerved the vehicle, you know, because you wanted to come out in a different place where you went in because you worried about somebody throwing a grenade in your turret, uh, you know. And, and it doesn't matter that, you know, it's years later, you don't react like you're in Iraq, but it doesn't take away the fact that it pops in your mind every time. So, you know, let's look at, let's take, you know, let's, let's take the warfare out of it. Let's look at women that have been battered. You know, a woman that's been beat by a man or, you know, even another woman um, or even a man that's been beat. I mean, I've seen that as well. You know, they have a hard time trusting. They have a hard time totally wiping out that scenario out of their brain because their brain and their mind, their mind and their body has been adjusted to be on the defense. 
So we're constantly on the defense. We're constantly hyper vigilant. Uh, we're watching things, you know. Um, you know, we've both been, you know, involved in things, you know, uh, over our lifetime that forced us to be that way, to look over your shoulder. It doesn't mean that we're paranoid or that we're, you know, so broken we can't function, but it does mean that we've had to change the way that we do business, you know, and we do have more of a keen sense of, you know, our surroundings. And, and that's, that's, if there's any benefit for PTSD, it would be that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, being, being hypervigilant, uh, I think it, it is part of it. Uh, but now one, th- another thing that I want to kind of, to, I want to, I want to fast forward, uh, to the invasion of Iraq. And this is, you know, uh, you went through a few days where you were wounded multiple times, uh, and as soon as you, you know, returned from the, the medical, uh, uh, you know, wherever the, the, you know, the, the medic was at, you were right back in the fight. Uh, and, and I, I just kind of, I want, I want people to understand and know your story. You know, you're, you're, you're a very close friend of mine. A lot of people don't know, you know, me and me and James actually went to college together. We've known each other for quite some time. Uh, but I will tell you that, you know, you know, you, you're a personal hero of mine too. Uh, and, and, you know, somebody that, that has been in the fights that you've been in and, and just, just didn't stop, you know, just kept jumping back in. As soon as you got, you know, back from the medics, you were back into the fight. And I think it's important that people get to also hear about your story, uh, that took place during the battle of Biop and Biop is the Baghdad international airport. So, uh, I'd like for you to kind of paint that picture for these folks. So our mission, so actually the invasion was during 2003 and we got there, I got there like, I got there like two days after Christmas, 2003. And I was there for new year's and, you know, 2004. And in March of the 22nd, that was the first time I was wounded. So, you know, you take that into perspective. I'm in country. We got a mission to do convoy security and to start to really look at uh, uh, that route uh, because the enemy had started, just started to really, you know, hit the convoys with the improvised explosive devices and, and things that, you know, what we classify as guerrilla warfare. And so March the 22nd, we were taking a mission uh, to carry some supplies and escort a convoy, you know, from Kuwait all the way up to Al-Assad Air Base. Al-Assad Air Base is on the western side of Iraq. You know where it's mm-hmm. at. And you come through, you take Route Tampa all the way up, and then, you know, you get on Route Mobile. Route Mobile takes you towards Decrit, you know, uh, and it's a long drive. It really is. It's a long drive. So once we got, uh, we hit Fallujah, and then we bypassed Fallujah and started to go to Ramadi. Right there in the middle of Ramadi and Fallujah on that highway, there were two really tall hills that were on the side of an interstate. We're talking, so if you really want to try to understand this, and you understand this, Richie, but for those that have never been there, it was like driving down Interstate 64, 77, Route 10, wherever. You take a major interstate, 
four lane highways, you know, overpasses, all that stuff. That was all there. And we were going in this section and these mountains had got between, you know, what they created, what they call a defile. And a defile is a place that has high points on both sides of the hill. Perfect place for an ambush. And we hit that defile and boom, you know, we got hit uh, with mortar fire, small arms fire. And right above that defile was a bridge that went over, you know, the interstate. Now, there was no entry or exit. It's one of those bridges that just, you know, cross the interstate, but there's no way to get on and get off. It was just all rugged terrain. So these guys were just hammering us from the bridge. They waited till our vehicle went through, security vehicle went through, and the people were calling us, you know, telling us, you know, we got, you know, we got WIAs and uh, one guy's uh, civilian driver's been shot in the chest and he's dying, you know, I mean, it was just bad situation. So I told my driver, I said, turn around. I said, let's go back. And they said, we've got gunners on the bridge and we, we found a way to get up on that overpass, just going cross country. As we went up uh, that route and got up there, we topped the top of that overpass and there was a white truck. Imagine that, and, you know, everybody had a white Toyota yeah. truck. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, and these guys were shocked because as soon as we come up, you know, we start laying, you know, laying the lead to them, pop, 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 glasses flying everywhere. And, uh, and they, you know, try to take off and we hit them and they go over the side of the hill, roll over and, and, you know, the truck, you know, was smoking. So nobody got out of that truck. I'll just tell you that. Um, so as I'm up there, we're still taking fire from the field and, and we're, you know, we're looking, trying to see where it's coming from. There was this truck that kept going out and back. He go forward, had a mortar system in the back of the truck, and they were boom, boom, and they'd back up. And the next time he came out, we all just fired on that thing. Now, I've never seen anything before this, before like this in my life. I've seen a lot of things. But evidently, one of us hit one of those mortar rounds, and that truck just exploded. Boom, you know. And it was like, we all looked at each other, and we were like, you know, what the hell was that? <laughs> you know? and, uh, and, but as I was looking and talking to him, I was standing outside the vehicle, and we heard, I heard the whizzing of gunfire. Sink, 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 you know. And heard a couple of rounds hit the vehicle. And then I heard, you know, heard some rounds hitting the ground and one of the rounds hit me in the right, you know, uh, shin area. Hurt really bad. Um, so the bullet, when it went in, it went in right there in the side of your calf, just behind the shin. And it made me, you know, I knew I was hit, but I didn't know, you know, if it was bad or what. And of course we turn around and we return fire and we had a nice little firefight up there. It went on for a while. A bunch of Marines had been in Fallujah and there were six vehicles coming our way. Now, so I'm wounded getting treated up on this bridge and lo and behold, out of these six vehicles, one of the guys that walks out of there is a guy named John Kelly. You know, John, General, General John Kelly. Kelly. <laughs> and uh, he come out 
And he said, who's in charge here? And I said, well, I am, sir. And he says, he says, you know, what the hell's going on out here? So I was explaining to him the situation, the scenario. And, uh, and he's like, now he says, he says, let's take care of the wounded, get your convoy back on the road. Let's get you patched up. He says, I think you'll be all right. You know, I mean, he, you know, he was just a really a cool dude. You know what I mean? I just have to say that about him and General Mattis. Both of them were just, they're warriors, okay? And I'm not a Marine, uh, but I have a lot of respect for those Marines. Yeah. And I will tell you that those two men uh, are heroes to this country, you know, uh, both in and out of uniform. And, and I can tell you that once we were going through that, he said, now he says, there's a truck over there. He says, he says, is there enemy combatants? And I said, yes, sir. There's one that blew up over there. And so he sent his team out, you know, and they start policing up the, you know, giving you the, I mean, they were big on counting how many of the bad guys you killed. And I remember he walked up to me and he says, now, Lieutenant, he says, we got to remember, he says, he says, um, we, we don't want to kill anybody that doesn't need to be killed. And I'm sitting there with this hole in my leg. And I remember looking at him and not really realizing, and at the time, you got to understand, Ricky, I didn't realize he was a general because he didn't have any rank on. But I knew he was an officer at the time, and I didn't learn that till later. But, but I said, sir, with all due respect, he said, every one of these son of a bitches out here today needed to be killed. And uh, he just kind of smiled at me and, like, put his hand on top of my head and and just took my head like that. And he says, ah, he says, you should have been a Marine, son. You should have been a Marine. <laughs> uh, and I went to Al-Assad and I got treated uh, by the by a Navy doc. And um, what they gave me was a sheet that said RTD, which meant return to duty, because I was very fortunate. So the bullet didn't break any bones. Um, you know, they got, the, they got uh, two big bullet fragments out of my leg and um, two years ago, no, a year ago, I went to the VA and they had to remove a, a third uh, piece of shrapnel that had went almost all the way through the other side. So literally this round had shattered and almost went all the way through. Now, March 22nd, we're at Al-Assad. I'm treated. We stay there the night, RON, 23rd. You know, we're heading back towards to pick up our next convoy. And I'm not going to lie to you. It was painful, but I got back to the base camp um, and we were talking to the commander. The commander said, well, we're going to take you off the road for a few days. And I really wasn't cool with that, but I, I you know, it actually worked out for the better because on April the 4th, I'm setting in the, the talk and I've got my leg propped up, you know, chilling, you know, and and uh, and a guy named Sergeant Groover comes in. And he says, look, he says, uh, we've got an ammo haul that's going up into Baghdad and things were starting to get really eerie about that time. You, know, you had the stuff going on in Fallujah, you know, you had stuff going on, you know, with Muqtada al-Sadr and. He uh, he said we'd like to take we'd like to, to know if Lieutenant McCormick can you know lead our convoy security you know because we had gained a little bit of a reputation from January, February, March 
you know, we'd lost no trucks. So those guys that were wounded, the guy was shot in the chest, he survived that. We didn't leave any trucks in. We didn't leave anything for the enemy. The enemy didn't get nothing. And uh, uh, they got some flesh, and that was about it. And they paid dearly for it. And, uh, and here's my whole thought process on that. I'm not there to play games with them people. It's not personal because I have nothing personal against the people of Iraq, none whatsoever. I do have uh, a problem with people that are trying to kill me. I don't like that, and I don't like you know anybody trying to, to prevent us from taking supplies, food, you know, anything like that. Um, so it was never personal. So when, when I got involved in this, I explained to my soldiers that we're going to be, it's all business, you know, and, and you're going to see and do things that you probably would never imagine. So we got our crew together, April the 5th, we roll out, we get up into Scania and we are remaining overnight in Scania. We got 44 trucks, ammunition, and uh, a great group of people, a National Guard transportation unit uh, from Ohio uh, made up the bulk of that and of that mission. And they were all good people. They really were are still good people. And uh, so by April the 7th, we are heading up into Baghdad and the traffic had stopped, you know, right before you make you can either go around Route Cardinals or you can go around towards the western side where you jumped up on ASR Sword, and you can go into the southwest gate of Biop, which I like to use that gate. Um, it generally was free of traffic, you know, once you got to a certain. When we got out of that traffic jam, it was eerily quiet on that road. There was nobody on that road. And we got up to where they make the right turn to go into biop. I'm up on a 50 cal and I'm watching and I'm like, I, you just have this feeling, you know? And when I had that feeling, I remember seeing something get thrown into the road and just explode. Boom. And then small arms fire just takes off. Bop, 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 bop. There was a truck in front of us, a Humvee in front of us that had three saw gunners. And they had, this was when you didn't have the up armor. You remember those days? Yeah, the hillbilly armor days. Yeah. So we had the uh, the soft top Humvee and he they peeled back the soft top and and three saw gunners. You know, that's a lot of firepower. Yeah. And, they're, and they're up there and they're just, I don't think I heard more than 50 rounds out of those saws and all three of those gunners were shot down. I mean, they were hit, hit good. You know, one of them got his thumb blown off. The other one got shot, you know, two or three times in the shoulder. Um, you know, a bullet ricocheted off a guy's literally off the side of his head. Uh, it, it was a bad situation. It really was. And you could hear everybody on the radio just, just exploding with panic and, and just, you know, calling in that this person's wounded, this person's wounded. So I told my gunner, I said, look, I said, pull up there and see, let's see what the situation is. Well, the enemy had put us in an L-shaped ambush. So if you look at an L-shaped ambush, now 
that is a really good ambush because you've got gunners that are firing this way at you and gunners that are firing this way at you. And they also had some people on the other side of the road that were laying low. And, and every now and then, you know, they were trying to shoot your tires because they knew they could stop them trucks and they could just brutally murder you. And they had a vehicle that I remember seeing running, you know, down that length of that access road and guys shooting out the windows. So when I got up there, I seen the Humvee, the three gunners, nobody was up there. And I look up and I see one guy, his name's Miller. And Miller got up and you could just see the blood all over him. And he squeezed off a burst in the direction of where the enemy was at. And then that's how we knew, you know, they're on the bridge. They're on the bridge. They're shooting down at you. They're off the bridge. They're to your left. And you got a vehicle there. And so I told my driver, I said, go straight for where that bridge and that road meet. That's the apex of the ambush. So if we could push through and we can get these guys to have to fire at us this direction, then they essentially fire on each other. Now it's hell for us, you know what I mean? Cause you got a lot of gunfire. It's like sticking your head in a bee's nest. Um, but we're up there. I have a 50 cal. I'm just going through 50 cal ammo like crazy. And I remember that my 50 stopped firing and I couldn't figure it out. And I looked and I saw that the belt on the 50 cal uh, had been broken. Then I realized, hell, a guy had shot that that thing. And I was trying to reach up and reload. And I pulled that feed tray up and I was reloading the 50 cal, fixing the broke link. And as I slammed it down, Richie, I looked up and I could see this black figure on the bridge. He was 175 meters away. Okay. And it's like, it's just a black figure. And it's like, I don't even, I didn't even hear the shot. So he fired and hit me in my chest. Um, but he had also fired and hit me in my hand and the round blew out the bottom of my hand. And so I'm down in the bottom of the Humvee. I don't remember exactly how long it was. Seconds, minutes, didn't really matter at that time. But my driver had came around to the back of the Humvee and opened up the hatch. And I remember him saying, you've been hit. He says, I'll get up in there and, uh, and take over the 50 cal. And I remember looking at him and said, shut the hatch. I said, I'm going to get up here and I'm going to kill every one of these son of a bitches. And I was just on rage at that time. Um, and as I was pulling myself up, I noticed that I couldn't grab anything with this hand because when that bullet went through, it broke my pinky, it broke my ring finger, it broke my middle finger, and it broke some of the bones in my hand and severed muscle and all kinds of stuff in there. But, um, but I could use my thumb. I could move my thumb and my forefinger without much problem and i remember coming out and there was a flare that i had a set of flares behind a bungee cord you know that we had there 
And I remember coming back up and seeing two guys to my left and just grabbing the flare and shooting the flare at these guys. Um, it, it was a fight for our lives. I, I really, honestly, um, it was the worst ambush I had ever been in. Um, I have to be honest with you, it was, it was nothing like I'd ever experienced before, but being shot twice in that engagement and then watching, you know, my other soldiers be shot, we really thought, because as this whole time this is going on, I'm yelling over the radio, telling the trucks to keep going into biop, going because the gate's right there, going to biop, going to biop. And uh, we sat out there for about 35 minutes. And, and, you know, no QRF, you know, the place was exploding with activity. I don't blame the QRF for that because, you know, they had guys that were killed on the other side of Baghdad trying to respond to other stuff. Um, but you literally, after that initial engagement, um, I told my driver, I said, pull over here. There's a little building. I said, pull behind this building. And... I heard on the radio that we're missing some trucks. Well, a couple of trucks had stopped before they went into the kill zone and they were sitting there and we were yelling for them to come in. So we couldn't leave until all the trucks got in. And I can remember telling my guys, I said, this is going to be like our Alamo. We're not leaving. We're not leaving until we get all the trucks in. And, uh, and they were all cool with that, you know, um, we ended up killing 18 insurgents in that engagement that day, and uh, 11 more were wounded and captured by the uh, 5th Special Forces group that was there. So, you know, the result of that attack, besides the, you know, the 18 dead militants and, and the 11 that they captured, was they were able to determine where they had came from. And the weapons that they recovered were Iranian-made. And so they were able to determine this, you know, these guys were from Muqtada al-Sadr. Now, one of them was a woman that was killed out there. So, you know, don't don't think that, you know, the, the bad guys are just guys. I mean, that's oh, yeah. bad women. <laughs> and uh, uh, and it's sad, you know, and I think that that probably it didn't really it didn't bother me as far as feeling guilty. But I always just thought. You know, I, I really never thought that I would ever, you know, run into a woman combatant. And uh, and that was, you know, different for me coming from West Virginia or wherever you come from. So, but you realize, look, anybody with a weapon that's firing at you is your enemy. And it's like it would be no different if if you had an invasion or an insurgency here in America. You know, it's the same thing. You know, it's like. You know, that's your determining factor. Who's your enemy? Whoever's shooting at you. You know, you also have to understand, too, that for, you know, as long as Saddam Hussein was in power, I mean, he painted the picture and he controlled the media. You know, everything that he wanted the people to hear is what they heard. So to them, you know, the great Satan was coming in and invading their country. And, and a lot of those people, you know, uh, I, I will tell you that I, I, I'm similar, you know, and, and, and it's like, you know, you have training that you rely on, 
But, you know, the first time, you know, the, the trigger is squeezed and bullets are coming at you, you know, it's it, it never ends up looking like it's, you know, perfectly uh, set up and, and the training goes as as perfect. You know, it, it's never like that. You know, I will tell you right now that, you know, I had this thought in my mind that, you know, because we were the United States of America, we were going to lay waste to anybody that got in front of us. And the first death that I saw in combat was a dead American, uh, you know, and that that went with me for for quite some time. And, you know, talking about the whole PTSD piece, uh, PTSD, uh, P- PTSD, uh, you know, talking about that and, and realizing that, you know, it affects everybody. You know, when they say some gave all, all gave some, all gave some, some gave all, you know, everybody, even if you're over there and you're on a base and you're getting rocketed and mortars are coming in. I mean, that, that stays with you, you know, forever, uh, you know, a rocket coming in, you know, it's a massive explosion and you feel it in your chest and you never forget those things. And a lot of people come back home and, and. You know, I mean, you're combat arms, I'm combat arms. You know, we see things outside the wire that are things that nobody should ever have to experience. But once again, you know, when you come home, you know, there, there's there's issues. Uh, you know, Haiti, Haiti was what hurt me more than anything. Because, you know, this was before I went to Afghanistan, but I had already been to Iraq twice. You know, I expected things like that in Iraq, but I never expected things like that in in Haiti. When we responded to the earthquake, uh, I was in the Global Response Force. And, you know, I will tell you that, you know, I was it, 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 it hurt me and it hurt a lot of our troops, you know, because our engineers were clearing the lines of communication by using bucket loaders to scoop into all the rubble that had fallen in the middle of the roads and crushed all these people. And they were in the same scenario that you gave uh, going into the highway of death. You know, you don't get to, you know, choose a path. You have to go straight through. And the same thing with the lines of communication and those soldiers, you know, digging up that rubble, but also with bodies mixed in with it. And I will tell you that it wasn't very long ago. One of the troops that we had that was operating one of those bucket loaders committed suicide. And his wife actually said that 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 deployment to Haiti was the worst deployment for him, even though he had been to Iraq and Afghanistan multiple times. It was that mission that we put them, you know, and, and it, it was a mission that had to be done. You know, it affected it affected those soldiers severely. And to this day, you know, we we see the the repercussions where we have 22 soldiers committing suicide every single day in this country. And how do we stop it? You know that's that's a that's a tragedy. I'm glad that you brought that up. I think that the the first thing that people need to understand is is that um, we're not broken. We're just you know experiencing uh, a normal reaction. If you know, I would be more concerned. You know, I, I got more concerned about myself conditioning uh, my justification to to kill and to tell my soldiers to kill as uh, it it almost became too normal. So it became too normalized, but how you knew 
that that you still had, you know, that that compassion is when we'd see the kids, you know, and I mean, the kids touched you. They touched me. They touched a lot of people. These kids in Iraq and Afghanistan and these war torn countries, you know, they don't want to be there. You know, they don't want to be involved. They want to do the same thing that your kids and my kids want to do. They want to play, have a good time, experience life. They don't, they don't want to have to duck and dodge and worry about getting shot and blown up and everything else, but they experience that every day. That was the heartbreaking thing for me is the number of dead children that I saw in Iraq and was just ungodly. I mean, it was just ungodly. And the fact that, um, that you had people that looked at, that life, that little life as having little to no value, you know, those are the real enemies. Those are the real enemies. Those people that think that way and do those things. Those are the people that actually, that, that I say that if, if anybody earned that magic 556 five, or that magic Modus bullet, those were the people that earned it. it was those that were just out there brutally brutalizing, you know, the ISIS type mentality that was always there. ISIS, ISIS has been around. ISIS is, you know, still around. That thought, that mentality has never changed. It went from Taliban to Al-Qaeda to ISIS, you know, they, they ultimately run off, feed off of the same things. And we sometimes make it worse. You know, that's, I would tell my soldiers always, always, Treat the civilians with dignity and respect because you run over, you kill one of their kids. You've made that whole damn village your enemy. Because I assure you, if you came down my street and you hit one of my kids and you're part of a larger group, that entire group becomes my enemy. Yeah, you know, uh, that makes a lot of sense, and in, in the same thing with the Abu Ghraib, and that's one of the things that I absolutely am still livid about today, is because during the, you know, the whole Abu Ghraib stuff, when those pictures surfaced, the improvised explosive devices across the country of Iraq were practically nothing, but when those pictures started showing and people started seeing, you know, it doesn't matter that they were prisoners. You know, the mere fact that you had women basically making fun of naked Muslim men, which was a absolute no-no, it lit a match and started a firestorm. And the improvised explosive devices went from the teens to the thousands overnight. And the majority of people that have been wounded and, and killed over there, you know, since then have been due to IEDs. Uh, you know, and and I'll tell you, I still have hatred towards what they did. You know, when I was actually getting my master's degree, uh, part of my, you know, the big massive paper that you have to write was focused on a, a lot of those issues. Uh, but I mean, absolutely, when 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 something like that happens, it it creates a firestorm that you know it's it's hard to get out of. Well, and, and, and that's the same thing that you see. And I try to explain because I've always been fascinated. Um, I try not to get upset at people too much, but I have, you know, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a human, you know, but I'm always fascinated at how those that have never 
ever experienced warfare can talk about death and killing like it's a nothing. And it's like, look, you have programmed your mind that's not reality. The reality is, is that someone's on the other side shooting at you. And I don't care how well, how good of a shot you are. You know, I mean, a lot of people go out and they, they, you know, they, they're really good marksmen, but nobody's shooting back at them. And, and when somebody's shooting back at you, that's whenever you have to really, really grab a hold of yourself, number one, to ensure that I'm not just spraying everything down, because most of the time we were overseas, they'd fire at you from up an apartment building. One window, every other window is full of families sitting there trying to just live their life. So I've got to focus and find that one window as fast as I can and eliminate that bad person, not just, you know, and it's, it's, it was, it was a constant struggle, man. You know, I mean, it's just unbelievable, but there's a movie called The Shootist and John Wayne, I, you know, I was always enjoyed watching his movies, but this is a great part in the movie where, where John Wayne and Ronnie Howard, you know, they're out there and they're practicing shooting. And Ronnie Howard's a young 16-year-old, impressionable kid. You know, uh, Mr. Banks, which, you know, John Banks, which was a gunfighter. That's who John Wayne was playing, his last film. You know, was a dying old gunfighter. And they're out there shooting. I remember in the part of the movie, Ronnie Howard says, Mr. Banks, I shot almost as good as you. And he says... Let me tell you something. There wasn't nobody up there shooting back at you. He said, and the reality of life is, is that somebody will, that will pull a gun with you. They'll take a breath. They'll bat an eye or they'll think twice about it. And he says, the difference is me as a gunfighter, I won't. I won't do those things. And that doesn't mean that that makes you cruel and sadistic. You know, a lot of people would like to think that you know, all of us that come back from war, we're all crazy, but we're not crazy. We just have that real gunfighter mentality. We cannot afford to hesitate, you know, and that's where that comes. So from. let's talk, let's, let's transition a little bit here and talk a little bit about the, the veterans administration, you know, first and foremost, you know, it wasn't until 2007 before anybody ever started talking about traumatic brain injury. And, of course, you know, from 2001 all the way to 2007, uh, we had thousands upon thousands of soldiers that found themselves in explosions, uh, you know, that absolutely, you know, struggle because many of them have not. You know, it took me uh, a, a few years uh, for them to finally diagnose me with traumatic brain injury over explosions in Iraq. Uh, but, you know, what, what can we do better? You know, the Veterans Administration, it's not perfect. It's far from perfect. You know, but what can we do better to be able to 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 fix so many people that we have that are absolutely broken in this country and they got broken in these forever wars? So, yeah, let me let me first address one issue. Number one, when that occurred 2007, and as you know, I'm I'm this I'm, I'm the senior vice commander for the military or the Purple Heart National. And so 
one of the things that we're looking at is we're looking at the massive numbers of potential Purple Heart recipients that we're quite frankly having a difficult time getting these awards approved because of the lack of documentation and the lack of the willingness of the DOD community to just simply acknowledge, yes, okay, and you acknowledge that this person was injured by enemy fire or even friendly fire because friendly fire qualifies for a Purple Heart and make that award. And people say, well, it's just a medal. It's not just a medal. When you receive that Purple Heart for a traumatic brain injury, that automatically puts you on the care spectrum in the VA one level higher because you have a Purple Heart. And that was set up by Congress. We didn't set that up, but it was set up that way to take care of the combat wounded. Richie, you've been wounded. You know, I consider you should should be a two-time Purple Heart recipient. I'm just going to just, you know, and say that. But I, I deal with others. My digging partner on digging history, verified fact, he was wounded by a mortar fire. And, and like you, he goes into the medic. They say, well, the medic doesn't even document it sometimes that you were exposed to a blast. It's not until later on. And then we have to go and find witness statements. And God knows we went out, we found lots of witness statements. And you put together what I call a perfect packet that should be, if we were in theater, that packet would have went through like a like a rocket. And, and we put it in now and it goes to a board and it sets for a year. And then you get the, well, we need more information. We need more information. So that is what we need to get fixed within the military community. That's got to be fixed. Um, fortunately, we are working with the new presidential uh, task force, the Veterans Task Force. We were one of the first veteran service organizations to call and congratulate President-elect Joe Biden and to say, look, we're ready to move forward, work with you for the betterment of our veterans, all veterans. And this is one thing that, that we made very clear that the traumatic brain injury issue in America and especially in the veterans community, is made worse because we're not properly identifying it as a combat injury. You go go to the VA, the VA will give you a disability rating for it. Absolutely. No problem. But, you know, the fact remains is, is that we're not properly documenting in the military community just how many soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and members of the Coast Guard that have suffered a traumatic brain injury. Now, people would disagree with me on that. But what I look at, Purple Heart recipient, yes or no. That's how you determine whether or not this is combat related. And if the military is really going to take this serious, then they need to go back and they need to start issuing those Purple Hearts. And they need to do it in a much more expeditious manner. And they need to be able to utilize the same documentation that they would utilize overseas except for that medical treatment, because many of you were not treated for that. You were treated for headaches. You were treated for dizziness, or you were treated for, you know, uh, I mean, I've seen it all. Sleepwalking, um, uh, TBI was, was you know, you know, re, un, you know was uh, misdiagnosed as PTSD. Hundreds and thousands of cases like that. So the VA could be more helpful in that. 
and not just the TBI, but everything, if we really looked at the VA, and again, remember what we said at the beginning of this show, we represent between 1% and 3% of the population. Every VA medical center should be just as good as the Cleveland Clinic. Should be top of the line. You shouldn't, you, you shouldn't go and get, if I go to Salisbury, North Carolina, or I go to Huntington, West Virginia, or I go to Beckley, West Virginia, or wherever I go, I should be able to get the same quality care. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it should be the best that this nation has. Well, let me tell you something else, and this is something that I'm going to really start trying to do some work on, and that is we absolutely should allow the Veterans Administration to be able to administer a non-addictive form of pain management, and that, what I mean, is cannabis. You know, I think that if you're talking about veterans, we're talking about 22 soldiers committing suicide every single day in this country. And I believe that, you know, for us to combat something like that, because that is unacceptable. It's all of our responsibilities to push that number from 22 to zero. But I think that the Veterans Administration, because we know so much about cannabis and we know how much it helps, should be able to override any state's law and be able to administer the veterans cannabis you know you know i tell people all the time when i was fighting to get that bill pushed in west virginia and passed i held up 13 dog tags one time when i gave a speech and i said cannabis cannot help bring these people back but cannabis can help those people who see their faces every night when they go to sleep to be able to get some relief so you know cannabis is a big is a big thing that i think we need and then also what you do you know, you have started something with some of your, your close friends, and it's digging history, where you guys are going out, you're using metal detectors, you're going to battlefields, and you are absolutely finding some amazing, some amazing stuff. But it really does, that's, that's your therapy. Yeah, it is. Well, and it's, it's physically, it's good for us. And I do the agriculture, you know. In uh, 2010, we started the, you know, raising cane farms and, and we started to do farming because it helped me. And in 2013, myself and a couple of other uh, people in West Virginia, we wrote the bill, uh, Veterans and Warriors to Agriculture, and got that passed, first one in the nation to get that passed. And, uh, and it, it went really well from till about 2017. And it seems like at that point, you know, it's just kind of went kind of off the tracks a little bit just because, you know, it's like anything else, Richie. It's like, you know, you have to make these alternative therapies have to be fun and they cannot be politicized. They've politicized a lot of this and uh, and, and the people, the very people that created it and, and really have put their heart into it. And there was a bunch of us, you know, you know, it's like. You just kind of get shoved in, into the back back room. So we do the digging history thing. You know, we've had archaeologists and different groups, you know, try to come in and, and take that over. But I'm very, very steadfast on maintaining this thing to be something that's fun and something that's enjoyable. But now let's talk about cannabis. Let's talk about cannabis. The biggest pushback I see on cannabis is the most hypocritical pushback I've ever heard in my life. Many of the people that I've talked to about cannabis says, well, it's a gateway drug. It's going to cause you to do something else. 
And I'm like, and literally we were at an event at, you know, those political events uh, at the Marriott, you know, how those went. And the guy standing there has a mixed drink in his hand. And I said, you want to talk about something that's addictive? You know, when you want to send all of my veterans to go sit at a bar and drink and drink and drink and drink, you know, and and you think that that's okay because alcohol is legal. That somehow makes it okay. Alcohol is, and I'm not on an alcohol push. You know, if you want to drink a little bit every now and then, drink responsibly. That's what I tell you. But if you're trying to say that marijuana, cannabis, you know, cannabis and, and alcohol, um, there's somehow that cannabis is worse than alcohol. Cannabis is better than alcohol. You know, cannabis is not one of those uh, drugs that you keep that everybody keeps beating a drum about. I see a lot of people that utilize it in a very responsible way. And you know what they usually do? They stay home. They stay home. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, honestly, you can sit. I've never watched a person smoke a marijuana cigarette and want to fist fight people. But you give them three shots of wild yeah. turkey and it's on. You know, alcohol is absolutely that way. So I think that it's important. And and that's another reason why I have a lot of issues with a lot of veteran organizations is because many of them are a bar. And a lot of these people, you know, especially the Vietnam veterans that come home and they didn't get the support that we got when we come home from Iraq and Afghanistan. A lot of those, you know, warriors climbed into the bottle and many of them drunk themselves to death because they didn't have a VA system that was worth anything back then. You know, so, you know, cannabis, absolutely, I believe can help so many people that struggle with PTSD. And it's not just soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines. You show me a police officer or a firefighter that's done that job for 10 years, and I'm going to show you somebody who has a hard time sleeping at night. And cannabis can help. You know, and I agree with that. And it's a good pain management tool. Um, And and also, let's just think about the aspect of, of the veterans. We talked about farming. The veterans that actually could get into that farm it and you know we have we have a poor veteran here that owns Appalachian Absolutely. Cannabis Company. Chris is a phenomenal uh, he is a phenomenal person. Yeah. Great guy, Chris Chris Yeager. And 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 Chris, every part I went out to visit his his farm and every person he had working out there was a veteran or a family member of a veteran. So you know he was putting his money where his mouth yeah. was. And, and a lot of people talk about helping veterans. Well, this guy gave them jobs and paid them good money, and they were all happy about their job. And, they, of course, they were growing for CBD oil. They were growing industrial hemp. So I think that that we're missing the boat. We're missing the boat in a lot of ways. We're, we're not, you know, everybody is worried about it. And I'm not, I'm not sure if this is an evangelical pushback or – I don't think it is. I think it's more of a, uh, a group – um, that can financially be, you know, that financially benefit from some of the pills that we're taking, you know, some of the really addictive oxycodone, oxycotton type stuff, you know, you take that away and you will remove a lot of other issues. Another thing, decriminalizing cannabis and refocusing your efforts on the drug war and go after the real drugs, the heroin and the, 
the crack and the, you know, the stuff like that. I mean, that's more destructive. Yeah. I mean, I'm watching OD on heroin every day in our little community, you know, in Mason County, people are ODing on heroin, a, a absolute star athlete that my son went to school with had everything going for him. He was going to college and, and was going to be a pro. I mean, he was going to be a pro football player, Richie. And then he ended up getting hooked on heroin and, and killed himself with heroin. OD'd. Um, sad, sad situation. 22 years wow. old. So when you look at the veterans community, we're affected by drugs too. We're affected by alcohol too. Uh, and, and understand. Yeah, you, you're yeah. spot on because one of the things that I had, uh, I actually got into it. Uh, my last few years at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, uh, I actually got into it with some folks in the Army hospital because uh, I found that some of my soldiers, I had a soldier that basically walked into a wall at 630 in the morning before PT. And then I realized that, you know, he'd gotten hurt. And they medicated the problem and he ended up getting put out of the military, you know, and, and, and the sad part about it is, is there's a lot of people out here that were put out of the military for drugs because they got addicted because the doctors medicated the problem. And in the military, you know how it is. We're going to keep you uh, medicated for until we think you can do a PT test. And then they cut you off completely. And a lot of these people found themselves without the drugs that they were addicted to. Five days is all it takes to develop dependency. And a lot of these people got kicked out of the military. Technically, we should be looking for these people. And we should be doing everything in our power. They, When they kick them out, they lose their VA benefits and everything. And and there are countless people that serve this country that got out on a bad deal that technically they shouldn't have gotten. And it breaks my heart oh. to this day because I was part of it. I was part of kicking people out of the military when I was a commander that, that, that was on drugs. Because to me, there was no tolerance. But I didn't realize that they had went and got hurt in war and come home and, you know, it just it was brutal. And and that happens. But but let me tell you, James, first off, I want to th- I want to thank you. You know, we, we've had a we've had a conversation for over an hour now. Uh, and, and, and I just want to thank you because I know it's you know, it's not easy to go back and, and, and put yourself in those places again. But I think that this is important. And the reason why I wanted to get you on this show is because I wanted people out there to get a better understanding you know, all gave some, some gave all, and I don't care what your job is. Even if you wasn't a combat soldier and you was in Iraq, we were taking people that wasn't combat soldiers and putting them on, you know, combat security teams. You know, we were, you know, people were seeing things and, and many of those people struggle to this day. And I think it's important that for us to be able to stop these 22 deaths every day in this country, we have got to accept the fact and start understanding what every single body goes through that finds themselves having to go through a war. Because death is not natural. When you participate in death, it's not natural. When you have to come home and those are the things that are on your mind, it's not natural. And we need to find a better way in this country to be able to help those deal with those issues. Uh, and I think that, you know, your you know time on this show definitely painted a picture 
that a lot of people don't understand. And one more thing that I want to say is that, you know, don't ever underestimate the National Guard and the Reserves. Because if it wasn't for the National Guard and the Reserves, we on the active duty side would have never got to come home. And make no mistake about it, the National Guard and the Reserves are over there, and they are throwing down with everybody else. They're they're out there just like you said. I mean, you got people out there getting shot up, blown up, killed. Uh, you know, I will tell you that every single time I found myself going in and out of a combat zone, it seemed like we were either replacing a West Virginia National Guard unit, or they were the ones coming to replace us. So I tell people all the time, don't under, don't ever disrespect those National Guardsmen because they absolutely get it done. Yeah, that, that you're right, and I'm telling you, it's uh, you know it's a big thank you to all that serve. You know, it's it's, but we're at a point now to where you know I think that we just need to work together. We really do, and and we need to work with each other. We need to stop being so. Um, combative as a nation right now i've seen people really you know the closest we've ever come to civil war has been in the last you know couple of years here it's just sad yeah. man really and we sad. just had an explosion on christmas in downtown nashville and i'm telling them i'm telling people i'm saying guys welcome to the american taliban and that's what we're yeah. seeing here and i think it's going to get worse before it gets better and and you know just like you we would have never in our lives thought that we would have to come home from a combat zone and watch this stuff take place in our own backyard. It's devastating. But I wanted to just, I want to, I want to thank you, James. Uh, I'm definitely, you know, I, I would absolutely love to bring you on again. Uh, you're a phenomenal guest. You're a phenomenal friend. Me and you've known each other for many, many, for decades. Uh, I consider, it's a brotherhood. I, I consider you a brother, man. And you know that. So, uh, so thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Uh, and, uh, you know, let's keep in touch, my brother. All right, man. Peace, Thanks, man. Brother. Take care. Airborne. Well, folks, there you have it. James McCormick is a phenomenal American and one hell of a guest. I wanted to paint a picture for each and every one of you so that you could better understand post-traumatic stress disorder and what goes on in the lives of those when they come home from war. But remember, it's not just them. You show me a police officer and a firefighter who have done that job for 10 years, and I'm going to show you somebody who has a hard time sleeping at night. Guys, I appreciate you guys coming here and checking us out. I want to make sure that you subscribe to this page and tap that notification bell so that you can be alerted whenever we do anything. Thank you very much, folks. Sappers clear the way, airborne all the way. <laughs>